0: Hi there, I'm Jason Shulman and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is Braden Ellum, a professor at the University of Sydney Business School. He's here to talk about his new book, The Pilbara, From the Desert's Prophets Come, published by UWA Publishing in July 2017.
1: Braden, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jason. Pleasure to talk to you. Well,
0: it's great to have you. So, so
1: Brayden, what is The Pilbara and, and how did you get
0: interested in that region of Australia? For the
1: benefit of US listeners, I think the best thing to, to say is to start off with something about it, its physical geography that actually a lot of people in the States will relate to. Um, it's a huge area, about 500,000 square kilometres, so to make some sense of that, that's about two-thirds the size of Texas, but it's just one remote area in an equally remote uh, space. And for me, the really intriguing thing about it to begin with is that in this enormous place, only 50,000 people live, but from that place at the height of the mining industry has been generated as much as 20% of um, the nation's export earnings, and this is all from iron ore, Jason, so that's the... Physical geography of the place, I guess, and and the backstory that fascinates me as a labor relations person is that over the course of uh, a generation, this place has been transformed. Um, I guess, like some mining areas in the U.S. too, from being a, a union heartland to uh, pretty much a non-union space.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so the Pilbara kind of exists as an important you know region in the australian economy as you mentioned uh, with respect to mining but also in the australian
1: imagination you say so why, why is that i think that's a very important point uh, australians live in cities it's one of the most urbanized places in the world but it's also a huge land mass about the same size as the 48 contiguous states of the u.s uh, and we have a we have a A feeling for or an imagined connection with what we call the outback in other words the the vast open spaces and that's where a lot of our national identity and culture as well as our export earnings have come from and those kind of places have really generated a lot of art and uh, a lot of uh, writing in Australia as well as a lot of economic wealth and they are very different places very harsh hot inhospitable climates um, near desert conditions, spectacular landscapes, but also an a- economic story there as well so I reckon all of those things come together in the way in the way that a lot of people think about places like the Pilbara, even if they've never been anywhere near it and of course most Australians have not
0: mm-hmm. so you you teach at a business school uh, you're not a you know geologist or mineralogist you uh, you focus on workers and employment relations. Why is it interesting to study unions and workers and, and the regulation of workers in this region specifically?
1: Precisely because of its uh, economic importance and because um, of the fact that a couple of the biggest mining companies in the world, some of which operate in North America, have been the key players in the industry. Uh, Rio Tinto, uh, the the London and Sydney-based company, and um, Broken Hill uh, BHP, Broken Hill, the old mining company that is now one of the biggest companies in the world. So what you have here is um, uh, really... Uh, a battleground, I guess, over ideas about how work should be organised between these very strong multinational corporations who want to control uh, how the work is done, where it's done, when it's done, and on the other hand, at least historically, very powerful local unions who um, exercised much greater control over the workplace than we imagine workers having these days. They really saw themselves rather like craftsmen in the 19th century. They saw themselves as being in charge of the work processes and they wanted to keep it that way. So lots of people have written quite rightly about the economic importance of the place. Lots of people have written about the the founding figures in the companies. Lots of people write, of course, about the company strategies themselves. But I wanted to talk about... Uh, how in the middle of these sometimes conflictual relationships, how the iron ore actually gets out of the ground and how it gets shipped and the men and women who do that and their families, how they saw the place, how they tried to make it the way that it was, how they made it into a union place and how that was completely undone over the course of about a generation. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, you say uh, a couple of times in the book that without the workers, you know, the the ore would stay in the ground. Uh, Really, the the workers are kind of key to the process. One interesting kind of paradox that I think you pointed out was kind of the the tension between the the local isolation and the global integration of the Pilbara. What, What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, it's a familiar refrain for some parts of the U.S. I think, and and for Canada and Australia, that there are lots of parts of those countries that we think of as remote, and and again, that the mythology and the imagination of them is all constructed in physical terms, and it's all about isolation and harshness, and sometimes even uniqueness, and all of that's true, but on the other hand. These places exist in the way that they do, as mining regions, for example, they exist in the way that they do because they're intimately connected with the global economy. They don't make any sense without them. They're completely constructed by, uh, as I already mentioned, multinational corporations, but more particularly and and more recently, the Chinese steel industry, uh, the global uh, labor force that comes to work there, uh the uh the global sources of finance capital that keeps the mines running so it's 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 as you say it's to me it's a really interesting uh paradox that explains why people can see the place in so many different ways because on the one hand yeah it is an isolated place but it's also home for many people um, but it's also of course uh, absolutely integral central part of a globalized economy
0: Uh, last question before we get to to you know industrial relations and and that's about Mm -hmm. and that's about gender uh you know there's there's this idea that you know the the Pilbara would be a place with kind of a macho ethos right not exclusively male but certainly predominantly so uh can you tell us a little bit about what you found when you actually did the interviews
1: yeah it's only half like that. Uh, the uh, as everywhere else in the twentieth century at any rate, mining was being pretty much constructed as mail work, and that's changed a little bit in the recent past, but certainly for most of the industry it was. But the mining companies were very keen to recruit married men to work there they reasoned perhaps not rightly as it turned out but they reasoned that married men would be more settled and less likely to be disruptors of uh, the workplace than single men and so once the industry started to really kick along in the 1970s Then the rate, the rate of female growth in the population actually outstripped men. And the, all the small mining towns in the area became, I wouldn't say suburban, but they had many of the features of an urban lifestyle. And in fact, um, younger population than on average in the country, larger families than on average in the country. And, uh, whilst most of the women did not do paid work, the, as I say, the number of women increased really very, very significantly in the population. And by the time I started doing my research there in the year 2001, by the time I started doing that, many of the people that I spoke to who were most informative about the history of the place and who were actually very, very active in local politics or community groups were... Uh, wives and partners of the uh, mining men themselves and uh, so the gender relations are a little more complex than it looks from the outside and you know even painting the man as <laughs> Uh, you know, just kind of macho big drinkers is uh, kind of one dimensional way to look at the complexities of their own lives and their relationships with women and their families.
0: That's right. So it's been uh, a little over 50 years since iron ore was first exported, right, uh, in 1966 as mm-hmm. uh, when the Pilbara really uh, took off. And then the 1970s really saw the emergence of you know strong unionism uh, in the Pilbara. What, what leverage did the workers have in those early days?
1: well i think it started off with something that actually wasn't peculiar to this particular place which was uh, as in a lot of countries at that time in the english-speaking world unionism was the norm in these kinds of industries and the law was also um kind of in favor of collective bargaining so it's not much of an exaggeration to say that unionism or union membership was the default position in these kinds of industries, but what happened very quickly was, again, partly because of the physical geography, that the unions became very powerful because uh, labour was in short supply and the nearest uh, town, the capital city of Perth, believe it or not, is 1,600 kilometres away, so, you know, roughly a 1,000 miles away. So the workforce was really in quite a strong bargaining position. The companies were under enormous pressure, as they still are, to deliver massive and massive tonnages of ore onto the ships on time for their customers. So the unions used that pretty well to drive wages up, to improve conditions. They were very aggressive about those sort of things. But they were also, as I hinted earlier on, they were also very aggressive in um, exercising control of some aspects of work, not everything, but some things like how the rosters actually worked, who got the overtime, uh, who had jo- who had access to particular types of jobs. Uh, one of the um, one of the critical employer groups referred to this as an experiment in workplace democracy, and I think that's a pretty good account of what were these what they were actually up to in that time.
0: So, you say that, you know, it it wasn't, uh, inevitable that the unions would become powerful, though there were some factors, you know, leading in a positive direction. Mm -hmm. What, What happened in the 1980s? You have a section called The Companies Strike Back. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, the companies one by one um, for similar sorts of reasons decided that this situation wasn't really viable. One of the reasons was, of course, uh, a little bit of a downturn in the industry Uh, of a more general concern was the rise of competition, especially from uh, Brazil where the big state owned company Vale was was a low cost competitor and uh so for those reasons as well as a a, a political sea change in australia uh, that was reducing employer tolerance and state support for unions the ground shifted pretty quickly You I know, remember the period that we're talking about here is a little after the big miners' strikes in the United Kingdom when Thatcher broke what had been the biggest and most powerful union in the country and after Ronald Reagan famously took on the air traffic controllers in the US so it was a general trend but it also had very specific components in Australia where some of the firms were 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 going to be very aggressive in trying to wind this back and win control of the workplace once again the critical thing to emphasize in an industry like this is that uh they were really they were really focused on control they weren't necessarily too worried about cutting wages down or reducing their costs in the way that employers might have been in other competitive sectors because this is very capital intensive and even though these guys are well paid it's still a small part of the total costs of production so the key thing for them was to uh, reduce union control over the work organisation reduce the number of strikes and other stoppages and if that meant that they had to pay the workers more money to to draw them away from their unions, then they were very, very happy to do that. And that started in 1986 at one company, uh, which incidentally had been owned by a, a U.S. company and it spread across the other sites over the next decade or so.
0: Braden, before I let you go, take us into the 21st century. Uh, the mining boom you know, of the early 2000s has generated billions of dollars in cash flow for Australia, especially Uh, as China was eager uh, for uh, steel for building. Uh, But, you know, your book kind of points out that mining has always been cyclical. So what what does kind of understanding the 50-year history and longer that you've looked at tell us about the present and the future?
1: I think, rather sadly, in my view, it means that not as much was made of the boom period as could have been. Sure, the profits are, were extraordinary. I mean, these are sort of things where you look at all the, the zeros and, and you look at all the numbers and you think, have I got the commas in the right place? Have I got the millions and the bits mixed up? You know, there's just extraordinary amounts of money and, of course, the the many of the, many of the workers were earning wages that had been undreamt of for blue-collar work before but having said all that uh, there was I think there's very little to show for it in terms of regional development in the area itself the Pilbara very little little flow through to other kinds of jobs either servicing the industry or downstream processing from the ore basically the stuff was still just being exported and when one uh, government was was bold enough to try to uh, Try to run a particular tax regime on the so-called super profits at the height of the boom. The companies organised very successfully against that. Um, the prime minister was unseated by his own party, uh, partly for that reason, and and uh, the the policy was uh, the policy was reversed. So, to me, when I look at it as a cyclical phenomenon, I think there are some underlying. Trends that are kind of disappointing that that we didn't make as much of it as we could. And I do think, Jason, that a big part of that story is the labour relations story. Because the companies had so effectively won control of their workplaces, there was really very little debate in the towns or in the industry itself. Um, The companies, as of course they would and should, expressed their own views very strongly, but there wasn't anything like... Um, the alternative politics or visions for the place and the industry that would have been articulated back in the '60s or '70s, when there were stronger unions and stronger community groups to put, you know, a different view to the, that put by the companies.
0: Mm-hmm. Braden, I want to thank you for being on the show today. That's Braden Ellam. Uh, his new book is *The Pilbara: From the Desert's Prophets Come*, published by UWA Publishing in July 2017. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.